Hello, and welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. Well, here on the So What Podcast, we are in a transition period between two series, one on heresy and the next one on the Protestant Reformation. And we wanted to take the opportunity to take a short break to address commonly misunderstood and misused biblical passages. So often we come across Bible verses that, having been lifted out of their context, are orphaned and used in ways that perhaps were never intended for them to be used. Well, we reached out to you, our listeners, and you responded. So each of these verses that we're going to be discussing over the next short mini-series come straight from you. So thank you very much for your input. Well, with me for this first episode is our regular contributor, Travis Buchanan. Hello. And a special guest, Dave Kakish. Greetings. Dave is a good friend to the show, and he is stepping in for Brad Mills and Matt O'Reilly, who could not make it for this first episode. All right, gentlemen, for the first verse, we wanted to discuss Jeremiah 29, 11, which reads like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. We see this so often on coffee mugs, bumper stickers, and I've even seen it on tattoos. Just before we started recording this show, I was Googling the word Jeremiah and the autofill finished off the search for me with the numbers 29 and 11. It seems that this is by far the most popular and well-known verse in all of Jeremiah. So guys, why is that? How is this verse being used in popular culture? Well, on the surface... It sounds like something you would want to claim as a personal promise, especially if your current situation doesn't seem very positive or Mm -hmm. you have a lot of adversity that you're facing. If you could cling to a promise that says, actually, what God has for me is prosperity, is a future, is hope, then there's some motivation or some encouragement to help you face a difficult circumstance. Mm Mm-hmm. There are lots of verses in the Bible, even one in Jeremiah that I'm sure Dave will want to share at some point that wouldn't work as well to provide that kind of motivation. You know, the verse Judas went out and hanged himself isn't put on a lot of coffee mugs or (laughs) on uh, quilts in the Christian bookstore. But there are those verses in Jeremiah 29, 11 is probably the chief culprit Mm -hmm. that become those little tidbits of motivation or little plaque, you know, sentiments that sort of litter Christian bookstores. There's a good intention behind using this verse, though, right? I mean, if I'm in the hospital and I'm sick on the hospital bed and somebody comes to me and recites Jeremiah 29, 11, the message that they're trying to send me is clear. There is a future hope. God does want this for you. Uh, so is it completely unfair just to... Yeah, I wonder if the background for or maybe not the best understanding of this text is in the proliferation of this technological age, 
we're just getting busier and busier and life is getting more and more complicated. It used to be if you wanted to be a missionary in India, it's a two month trip in a boat. Uh, I can be in India tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> and text you and contact you where it would take six months to send a letter. So life has gotten a lot easier in a way. And as a result, it's gotten a lot busier between soccer practice uh, for the kids and uh, Bible study and seeing family and being committed to your small group. There's just so much in life that's going on that people want to be in the word more. They want to apply the word more to their lives, but they don't have the time to sit down and study like they wish they could, which is given birth to the verse a day Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I love the Lord. I believe God's word is for me and for my good. And I want to apply it to my life. I don't have time to make Jeremiah 19, 9, you know, my life verse. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh. We start reading that, go, skip. <laughs> I don't know how to apply that to my life today, and I really want to honor the Lord. But Jeremiah 29, 11, I mean, that's just so much easier. And, and it's used in so many situations. It's used as an encouragement to succeed in your diet. It's used as a comforting word to a family that just lost a child. Like, hey, don't worry. God knows the plans, and therefore you're good. It was used uh, last week, and in my family, uh, my mom was diagnosed with a, a you know a cancer. There was a tumor on her spinal cord, and and it was my dad of all people who came and said, you know, God knows the plans, and they're for good and not to harm you. Therefore, mm-hmm. this is not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And so the intention is beautiful, uh, but sometimes the application is amiss. Yeah, I see it misused sometimes with preachers who are saying that God never wants anything to happen to you that would be bad. He never wants to see you walk through a dark valley. And so the proof text for that is here. He always has a plan of hope and for a future of goodness for you. But that just doesn't mesh with reality. Yeah. Uh, You asked what are the intentions behind misuse of this verse or just a desire to come to this verse. And I think just as Dave's sharing, well, it would probably be as various almost as there are individuals, Mm -hmm. um, what people are, are desiring to get out of this. And on the other side of the scale, you want to balance things with it was the pleasure of God to crush his own son in Isaiah 53. And so obviously you can't make a blanket statement that God only desires um, good and satisfying things for you as a person. And I think in America, so Dave is bringing up our technologically advanced culture that we live in and the conveniences that that brings. Why this is such an Achilles heel, I think, for American Christianity is just our love of comfort and our desire to create the most convenient, the most pain-free, the most insulated and padded existence for ourselves. And, you know, the luxuries we are afforded, and I'm not talking about people that make over $100,000 a year. I'm just saying even at the what is called the poverty line in our country, the luxuries that are afforded people in this country versus what much of the world has to face on a daily basis. So if I can have some divine endorsement for what I'm already seeking to do, which is this unreflective consumerist mentality where I'm just trying to consume and pad my life, if I can put a divine endorsement on that, and especially in the South, you know, where Christianity is inflated by the, you know, the proliferation of churches and Bibles and sermons. Where we are right now, just Exa- to clarify. Sorry, yes, in the American South, where we're recording Old this time. in Mobile. You know, if I'm coming from a place of Christianity and where there's a, a, a sense in which I want to justify my life decisions and I have a verse of scripture that I can just placard on that, then, you know, great. And we see how it's then abused. We haven't talked about this yet. Maybe we'll talk about it, but in TV preaching and health, wealth, prosperity, mm-hmm. gospel, how this just fits hand in glove then. And just a word. I mean, if <laughs> if you feel uh, castigated now <laughs> with our discussion on 
intentions behind reading this incorrectly and just like, man, I must be a terrible Christian. I mean, there's hope for you. And, and part of the God has a God has a plan God for you in a, a future and a hope. <laughs> and hopefully it's finishing the podcast and, and <laughs> being helped in and understanding this passage rightly. But I mean, maybe it's a failure on the on the teachers to teach. Uh and, and that's part of the book of Jeremiah. Yeah, God that's right. rebukes the shepherds for failing to mm-hmm. rightly shepherd his people and tell them the truth. Uh, and they're telling the people what they want to hear. And you know, there's a quote by A.W. Tozer that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because that's the God you will serve. And when Jeremiah 29, 11 is the only verse, you know, in Jeremiah, the God that you serve is a God who only plans good things for you and he plans to prosper you. And it doesn't allow enough space for God to be the God that he has revealed himself to be, even in the context of the book of Jeremiah. Mm. Uh, before you have Jeremiah 29, 11, you have Jeremiah 21, 10, no one's favorite life verse. And this is the Lord speaking to his people, the people he promised to bless and bring into a land and prosper. He says, uh, for I have set my face against this city, which is uh, Judah for harm and not for good. Well, that's the opposite, <laughs> declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So is our view of God big enough that he can say, I'm going to prosper you and bring good, or I'm going to bring disaster on you? Are we allowing God to be God in the whole of how he's revealed yeah. himself? So what's going on behind this passage in Jeremiah? Because now you've introduced this verse that precedes Jeremiah 29, 11, which seems like the exact opposite of what God is promising them. What's the big event that Jeremiah is writing about right now? You're asking me, but I know you know the answer, <laughs> smart guy. Okay, it's the Babylonian captivity, right? Yeah. So Israel is in exile. They were exiled to Babylon at about the 6th century, so 598, 597. And there are a lot of false prophets tickling the ears of the people during this day. Nobody wants to be under exile, and that was certainly not how they understood the promise of God to be when they were called out of Egypt and given to the land of Canaan. And so now they're going from a fractured country, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, to an empire that is essentially splitting their people up, destroying their way of life, and trying to assimilate them into a foreign culture and a foreign religion with foreign ways. So the false prophets are telling the people what they want to hear. Don't worry about it. We're going to be out of here soon. So in Jeremiah 27, 16, God warns the people, do not listen to the words of your prophet who are prophesying to you, saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. And God says specifically, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. And then later in chapter 29, immediately before the verse that we're talking about today, he says, do not let the prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send it to them, declares the Lord. What is it? That will return shortly. He goes on, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. Then, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. So 29.11 is answering the question that's naturally going to rise from Jeremiah's words, did God abandon us then? Because we have all these prophets over here telling us this is just a temporary thing. Obviously, God's still on our side. Don't worry about it. Jeremiah says, no, 
you're not going to be gone for just a little bit. You're going to be gone for essentially an entire generation, 70 whole years. But don't worry, God still has a plan. Mm. At the end of that time, he has not abandoned you. He's walking through you with this dark valley. Mm. There is a future of hope ahead of you. That's the historical context behind Jeremiah 29, 11. And I think it's really important that we understand that. There was a pastor that I had in Arizona, and I actually love this, but he used to say, and he was thinking more of the Second Corinthians 4 passage, 3 and 4, about the light and momentary affliction of our sufferings in this life. And he would encourage the church by saying to them, no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime, which is counterintuitive and might sound insensitive on the surface, but there's a sense in which, okay, so this is going to be 70 years, essentially our whole lives. But is that all that we have to hope in then? Mm -hmm. Or is there anything for us to do then in life? And if you balance that in the, on the scales of eternity, then is it endurable? Right. And that's a great question to ask too. Okay, 70 years, we're in Babylon. What do we do? Twiddle our thumbs for 70 years? Mm. That's not what, what God says, right? What does he say? Yeah, I mean, in, in verses, the verses that precede 2911, he, he's telling them to seek the welfare of the city, seek the shalom of the city, seek the benefit of the city. I mean, in, in the verse that precedes verse seven, five and six, build houses. Settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons, find wives for your sons and give their, them to your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Uh, he's calling them to be fruitful and multiply even in the midst of exile in a nation that just destroyed their mm -hmm. temple. Yeah. And these people are wishing for Babylon's destruction. God promised to crush the evil one, and yet he's giving the evil one <laughs> victory over his people. Yeah. And while they may seem that they're conquered and, and down, God's saying, you're not down and out. There is a purpose in this season, and I want you to... Press on, press in. If, if things go well for Babylon, it's going to go well for you. If you thrive there, they will thrive there. If you get rich there, they're going to get rich there. But if famine comes there, famine affects you. If they get attacked, you're going to get attacked. If the city suffers, you will suffer. And uh, it, it's important to note that Daniel is in Babylon at right. the same time that this is going on. And we were just discussing this uh, prior to recording. But Daniel is an enacted example of what Israel ought to be doing <laughs> while under the occupation of Babylon, seeking the welfare of the city without compromising allegiance to Yahweh. Mm -hmm. I think that's really good. We're going to transition at some point to say, well, what can we do with this text? If, if, if it's illegitimate to just use as a divine endorsement of a consumerist lifestyle or a self-centered lifestyle. I was just reading in Lewis, C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, and he says, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, mm. a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. In the book, he's talking about the problem of pain or evil and suffering in the world. And that's palpable in American culture, just that desire for a blessing on my life as however selfishly I would like to structure that. Well, that's obviously not what the context of Jeremiah 29 is endorsing or allowing someone to do. But there is application for this verse, mm -hmm. and it's a verse for Christians today and for the church today, not just historical Israel in the sixth century. You bring up some excellent points that there is now work to do. It's not the really great thing, the really great blessing that you wanted to occur and that you hoped was imminent is not going to 
happen in your lifetime. Mm. And there's a there's just a long history of disappointment in scripture. Moses isn't gonna get to go into the promised land mm-hmm. as a result of his disobedience. He's gonna die within sight of it and the pain of that and the sorrow of that. Jeremiah's entire ministry. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's somewhat ironic that Daniel lives for, to see the end of the 70 years and he gets to see the nation of Israel start to make their trek back mm-hmm. and he's called to stay in Babylon yeah. even after the seven years are done because okay. the angel tells him, well, that was the beginning of this, but Israel's not going to be fully free in 70 years, but 70 times seven, 490 mm-hmm. years. So it's just more worse news. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you think of the pain of the apostle Paul's ministry of planning churches and then seeing others come along and sowing divisions in them or having to write them letters and deal with the type of issues that, you know, the new Testament is, is addressing in these occasional letters. The fact that he's sorrowful yet always rejoicing and filling up in his own sufferings, the afflictions of Christ. And I think there's an important, and this is just general and biblical interpretation, drawing distinctions between individual and corporate addresses. And so this isn't a verse for an individual. It's for, the people of God. Yep. And as a member of the people of God, you might be the one who has to stay back and it might be someone else who goes and sees the fulfillment of it. Or you might be the one who gets cancer and doesn't get the healing that your neighbor gets or another person in your church gets. Or you might be the one that loses a child or you might be the one called to grieve with the person that does. And so you can't take corporate promises and then apply them individually to say, well, you know that no harm is gonna come your way because... God's plans are to prosper you. But there's this trajectory of hope. Yes. Right. Which is what Daniel is hinting at. Mm-hmm. You're staying here, but in hundreds of years from now, mm. that's when Israel is going to be delivered. That I think ties in really nicely with the welfare, hope, and future that God promises Israel and Jeremiah. What is he talking about there? Yeah, the the plans, um, going to what Travis's point. Uh, to his credit, the plans that God has for you, you is second person plural, <laughs> the people of God. And his ultimate plan is to bring about cosmic reconciliation, yes. wiping the tear off of every eye. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. can be so myopic and short sighted and say the plans that God has for me is this new job, changing my major from engineering to nursing. And, and, and it's not that those things are trivial to God. I mean, his plans are minute as knowing the amount of hairs that are on your head. He cares about those mm-hmm. things. If he cares about the sparrow, he cares about you. But all things are working towards his ultimate goal, which is to bring about the shalom of God to not just Babylon, but every city on earth and Mm -hmm. recreate. And I think implicit in this is their marching orders to dig in and push out. I mean, in, in times where our culture seems to be against us. I think the knee-jerk reaction, the implicit reaction is to go into a holy huddle, become insular, protect ourselves, build up walls. And in fact, these orders, you know, read in context of the Great Commission is to go out and go in Mm -hmm. and to penetrate and seek and and dig in and marry and plant gardens and don't just have a tent, which is temporary. Build a house. You're going to be here. (laughs) But when you build the house, open your doors, invite your neighbors in. But Travis, man, I love what you were sharing. Like, is it? an improper interpretation to share this verse with a grieving family lost a child. Absolutely not. So how is it typically used that we would say is incorrect? Because we're saying verse situation incorrect, verse situation correct. What's mm-hmm. what's the distinction between the two? Can someone help me that? Because I'm a bad Bible reader. Let me approach it from a, a wide angle lens and then let's narrow in maybe to individual applications of a hospital bed or something like that. But 
I think when interpreting any passage of scripture, it's helpful to put it in its redemptive historical context. And what I mean by that is the Bible tells a story. Mm-hmm. We have a canon that is, there's a shape, there's a story shape a to the Bible, right? C-A-N-O-N, a rule, or the 66 books of the Bible arranged as they are. So from Genesis, the first book to the last book, Revelation, there's a story shape to this narrative that is redemptive where we go through creation, fall, restoration and recreation, if you were looking for big themes to trace. And so when these words were written, the people that were receiving them could not have conceived of the full scope of God's plan to prosper and bring welfare, shalom. That Hebrew word shalom for peace is the word welfare in the verse. And that's, you know, another theme that applies to the redemptive historical arc of the story that you can see in the garden. There's shalom, there's perfect welfare, there's perfect peace. Everything is very good. Human beings are naked and unafraid and in communion with God and creation and with one another. And that peace is broken and shattered by sin. And that peace is then only glimpsed in moments throughout the story. And then Jesus comes to restore that peace and to put that peace inside of his followers through the Holy Spirit. But there's still a city. Jerusalem also means peace and righteousness or the city of peace. You have the shalom in Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem is gonna come down at the end of the story and peace is gonna be fully mm-hmm. restored. Welfare, well-being, wholeness, health is gonna be fully present is, again. Isn't it in Jeremiah or is it Isaiah where he talks about when the new Jerusalem comes, they're gonna turn in their swords and they're gonna turn them into uh, shovels and plows to work the mm-hmm. land. Like these, these instruments of destruction and death are gonna be used to cultivate and build and create. And- yeah. So now Jeremiah 29, their concern is I've been taken from, Jerusalem. That was my home. That's where the temple was. That's where we worship God. It would seem like their historical vision was, I just want to get back there. Mm. I want to have life as we knew it, you know? And if you go back and read the prophets and the Kings, you know, people say the good old days weren't actually really that good. Mm. And, you know, things weren't going well for them while they were there for the most part. There's not very many good Kings in Israel and Judah's history, but you know that, I mean, we can all identify with that. Like, before this really bad thing, uncomfortable thing came into my life, if I could just go back Mm -hmm. to before this. I mean, there's people in marriages who are so unhappy in this culture of easy divorce. And a lot of them are thinking, oh, if I could just get back to before Mm -hmm. this, you know, decision I made. Mm -hmm. But what I want us to see is that, so in Jeremiah 29, 11, they're thinking, if we just get back to Jerusalem and the temple and resume our old way of life and not be in this foreign land with this weird food, with these people who hate us and have killed our family and destroyed our temple, that would be life as we know it. But that's not what God is ultimately talking about because his plan is to bring about the full restoration of all things. You mentioned cosmic, you know, the cosmic scope to the incarnation, death, resurrection, and redemption that is offered through Christ. And so there's a much wider concern here than just the immediate relief of an uncomfortable situation. And if anyone is going to apply this in an individual way to a certain suffering or pain or difficult circumstance in their life, I don't want them to lose touch of the corporate dimension to it and to what is ultimately God after in the world. Because even if he heals your loved one of cancer, they will die from something else Mm -hmm. at some future date. Mm -hmm. 
And so there's an ultimate healing that is beyond the grave, mm-hmm. that even if we got circumstances the way we wanted them in life, which we never will, things are never going to be the way we want them in perfectly ordered, you know, entropy. Thank uh, God for that. Yeah. What, um, isn't that Lewis? I know that God is good because he has not answered all my prayers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? God would have to hate me if he were to answer <laughs> right. all of my prayers. Yeah. You know, I really enjoy N.T. Wright's picture of the purpose of the Christian life that being cultivating on earth bits of heaven, colonies of heaven, I think is the picture that he uses. And I can't help but think that's what you see in the picture of Daniel in Babylon. Everything that he's doing, he's bringing heaven to earth through God's power. This is not of his own doing, right? This is a special calling that's given to him. And if pulling this verse down to earth is bringing a bit of heaven for that individual that you're comforting with Jeremiah 29, 11, I think that's appropriate mm. because it's casting their hopes past the pain that they're experiencing right now mm. and putting them on a future hope that includes, as we've been saying, the entire cosmos. Mm. Implicit in proper interpretation and, and more than interpretation, interpretation is uh, the art of digging up the meaning of the text. But now we're talking about application. How does this text shape and form and and, and permeate my life on a regular basis. Can I still do a verse a day applying this to me? Well, f- for sure. I mean, you have a mandate, you have a command for, we, we are in the exile. Yeah. <laughs> exile is not the proper term. I've written a post on that. Exile, they were cast out of the land because of their sin. We're sojourners and strangers. This is, uh, Peter talks about us, that we're like Abraham. Uh, we're marching through this world, but to a land that we're going to possess finally and fully. And so these are marching orders for how to live in this world, to not be too transient, you know, <laughs> to not be nomads and gypsies saying, well, it's all going to burn anyway, so I'm not going to get attached. Because he says, hey, don't live in a tent. <laughs> build a foundation, build a house. But also the reality that this still isn't our home, but we have a purpose here. Uh, how, how to deal with enemies. <laughs> Babylon is their captors. I mean, Travis was alluding to that. I mean, murdered your sons, raped your daughters, and, and now you're telling us to seek the welfare of the city? Mm-hmm. But implicit in the command to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, that you will be a blessing to every nation. And Israel was becoming insular, uh, seeing themselves as their own righteous. That's why we have the land and they don't. And God moves them there to punish them for their sin, but also they would be a blessing to Babylon. That's right. I mean, how big of a blessing was Daniel's faithfulness to Babylon? In the first four chapters of Daniel, you have two kings of the known world giving a doxology, a praise to the one true God. That's right. What was happening in their life and this is going to sound controversial, but your life is not about you. <laughs> Let God and God over and over again tells us how much he cares about us, even as individuals, you know, like who is man that you are mindful of us. He does. One of my favorite forms of artwork is mosaics. I just love it. It's so cool to me when you look at this composite of tens of thousands of little pieces of something that when Handled and formed by a master hand and shaped and smoothed and painted and each is put in its place when all pieces are in the right organization, it forms one beautiful picture. And I imagine myself sometimes in the scope of, of creation history uh, as just one stone. And maybe I'm blue. Maybe I'm jagged. but I, Some days I'm blue. I, I, I feel honored to be a part of the picture that God is painting. Yeah. And we know how it ends. Yeah. You know what he's painting. And so I can have hope mm-hmm. in so many, in, in, the, in the trivial. The point I'm trying to make is understanding the historical context, all the things that we're saying, doesn't necessarily negate the way that you're reading it. I think it 
deepens it and enlivens it and mm-hmm. gives it more meaning mm-hmm. because we're tethering it to the ultimate story that God's telling. Yeah, that's so good. And just to play off your mosaic analogy, that same analogy is used for biblical interpretation in the rule of faith in Irenaeus, which we're talking about in this you know, mini series, how to interpret the Bible responsibly, faithfully. He says, texts of scripture are like that mosaic and the rule of faith, which is, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. It's, we did this series on the Apostles' Creed. It sort of gets formalized in the Apostles' Creed, but these major non-negotiables for Christianity, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was raised on the third day, that he ascended to heaven, that he sent the Holy Spirit, that this was seen by his followers and this overcoming of sin to redeem us and bring us into the family of God serves as a boundary marker on how we read scripture and how we interpret scripture. And so Jesus teaches in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, and he was teaching this all along. You know, his disciples couldn't hear it during his earthly ministry. He'd say, hey, did you guys know that I'm gonna die and be raised again? And that that's what the prophets are talking about. And they don't get it. Peter even tries to forbid it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Jesus has to teach us how to read the Bible Christologically or seeing him as the key, the missing chapter, the fulfillment that helps make sense of this wider mosaic. And so verses of scripture passages, Jeremiah 29, 11, that's like taking a piece out of the mosaic and putting it on your fridge. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't give you the whole picture mm-hmm. when you're just looking at it in that context. But the rule of faith is something that helps us make the right picture from a mosaic. And so Irenaeus uses this example of, imagine you had shipped all of these pieces of the mosaic to someone and put it together in their church. You would need a key so that they knew where the blue pieces meant, where the red pieces go and where the yellow pieces go so that it all fits together to make the face of the king for your icon or what have you. But there's a way to reshape it so that it looks like a dog and not a king. And that's what people do with scripture essentially is they twist it, they misinterpret it. They Mm -hmm. don't have some sort of controlling rule that will allow them to interpret things faithfully. But that also reading scripture Christology helps us take verses like this from 6th century BC addressed to the nation of Israel and make use of them and application of them in 2017 in Mobile, Alabama in the American church. Because we, so talking about that redemptive historical arc, we place the piece of the mosaic in the bigger picture and we see Israel didn't grasp this at the time, but we are gifted with the benefit of knowing Christ and now looking back through, I mean, this is what the New Testament is doing. We, you know, you talk about sometimes it's almost maddening to think what are the New Testament authors doing with the Old Testament? Like mm-hmm. they would fail our hermeneutics classes in seminary because they're not following the rules of modern interpretation. You know, they're ignoring historical context and they're changing words around and they're seeing these fulfillments that, you know, would have never been possible for the original audience to receive and couldn't have been the human author's intended meaning. But there's dual authorship to all scripture. There's the human authors of these 66 books spread out over this, you know, millennium and a half when these writings are being recorded. And there's the divine author, the Holy Spirit, the one author of scripture. And so all of that to say, now we see the fuller picture. So God's plans are to have a faithful people on earth. He starts with Adam and Eve. They blow it. He comes to Abraham so that we see the first 11 chapters, you know, the flood, like it, you know, Adam's sons are killing each other. Okay. So it doesn't take long to get off the rails. Flood narrows things down to Noah. 
you know, we still don't see righteousness on earth. He chooses Abraham. He starts with the nation. But the terminus is never, I want you guys in Jerusalem so you have a happy life in a temple, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be a light to the nations. Well, they Mm -hmm. fail, they fail, they fail over and over again. Okay, so it's not going to come through the nation of Israel. I'm going to narrow it again to a man. It's going to be the Messiah, this time the son of God, the true king, David's son, the incarnation, Jesus comes. And what does he do? He broadens it back out again. It's not insignificant. He chooses 12 disciples, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the new nation. You 12 go. You're going to be, you know, you see the imagery played out in the book of Revelation. I won't get into all that. but And then we're going to have one people of God again, but it's going to be made up of Jew and Gentile, male and female. There's not going to be different courts in the temple. You're all going to have access. I'm going to die on the cross. The curtain's going to be torn. You can all come into the Holy of Holies now. In fact, you're going to be the new temple. And so seeing this whole cosmic shape to the redemption of all things and how God is acting through a people and he keep, you know, people keep failing. And so the author comes into the story himself through the incarnation and he restarts the whole thing. And, you know, we're not in exile as a result of sin. There's a difference there, but the new Testament letters are addressed to a dispersed people of God, sojourners, wandering a hostile territory mm. where the kingdom of God is now advancing in enemy territory. And so we're to pray that the kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just so we can get through our 70 years and go live on a cloud with a harp, but you brought up N.T. Wright and one of the big emphasis of his work is seeing the new heavens and the new earth as a replacement of our ethereal existence, mm-hmm. you know, in heaven that where we can just continue our comfort, you know, lifestyle of the misuses of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven of, you know, I can just go to heaven and continue to have all these conveniences and comforts. So there's a work to be done. We were to build cities and God's city ultimately is going to come down mm-hmm. eventually. So that's the misuses of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. What would be like a proper use? Yeah, so building on that whole historical understanding, the redemptive historical arc, the corporate nature of the promise, the people of God now in the New Testament under Christ. So how do I take Jeremiah 29, 11 and find meaning in my life from this? Well, God does have a plan and his plan is much bigger than just the historical people living, you know, 1500 years ago in the ancient Near East that has no connection to in a lot of ways, my life in America today. No, God's purpose, God's plan is to put his kingdom on earth, is to restore the garden. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the word for garden. That's the picture of coming back to what was ruined through the fall. And God is gonna build that again on earth. And so he's calling a people to set about doing that work. And so whatever your life looks like, if you're part of the people of God, if you're a Christian, then you're part of that mosaic that God is building, that picture of the Mm -hmm. king on earth. And your sufferings and your struggles and your difficulties, if carried and born faithfully, are gonna be part of what God is doing to bring that. And it's not gonna happen in seven years and it might not happen in 70 years and you're not gonna maybe see the fulfillment of it. But you're part of that beautiful patchwork redemptive picture of God. And so draw encouragement that the author of the story is going to finish the last chapter and it's just going to be the beginning of, you know, a new story. And he's after his image of God in you and his image of God on earth and folding all things, not just people, but creation, animals, stars, moons, everything. He's bringing it back to that peace, that wholeness, that restoration, he will finish the job 
And whatever small part you play in that will be taken up into that larger story and uh, see fulfillment beyond your wildest imagination A bigger, or dreams. better story without yeah. sin. Yeah. And so maybe that makes whatever difficulty you're facing today easier to know in light of this grand scheme that involves not just you, but all of creation. So what? What do we make of Jeremiah 29, 11? Well, originally the verse was given to the Jews as they were experiencing exile from their land into a nation that hated them, a culture that was different from them, and a religion that was an affront to God. And yet, God called Israel to turn away from the false prophets that were telling the people what they wanted to hear and acknowledge what they did not want to recognize, that the Jews would be in Babylon for 70 years. Did God abandon them? Absolutely not. Because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Instead, the Jews were supposed to seek the welfare for a world that hated them. A type, a foreshadow, that just as Christ was sent into a world that was hostile to him, to redeem it and to seek the welfare of it. We should use this verse to encourage one another to look forward to the cosmic reconciliation and redemption that is our ultimate welfare, future, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ.